0: Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And Sam and I are welcoming you to another in our new series, He Gave Us Stories, which is on the parables of Jesus. And this week, we're coming to Luke chapter 15. And Jesus telling a series of parables here. There's actually three of them in this chapter, and they're all connected in some, in what we think is some interesting ways. So we're going to be, we're going to be looking at that. Um, Sam, why don't we begin by letting people know what's happening here? Because Jesus is, is reacting to something. So, um, what's happening at this moment that Jesus is feeling like he needs to answer?
1: Well, Jesus has been – he's been going around. He's been doing ministry. He's been performing miracles. He's starting to get a crowd. And at the end of – interestingly, at the end of chapter 14, he lays down this teaching about the intense cost of following after him. And you know, he's saying this this is going to take a lot. It's going to – you have to do a – you have to lay down your life to be my disciple and surprisingly – a lot of tax collectors and sinners well what does that tell you they start gathering around him and as he's talking about what it means to to come into his kingdom and to to be his disciple you know these people who are the the biggest outcasts and the ones that are probably most desperate and not sensing fulfillment in anything that they're chasing are all interested and so they start drawing near to him and they're coming to dinner with him and Jesus is welcoming them and in first century culture, with the Pharisees and scribes, that that wasn't you know, popular.
0: Yeah, <laughs> no,
1: not at all. And in fact, you were identified as righteous or unrighteous based on who you hung out with. And so, at the start of it, it says the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, "Ugh, this man receives sinners and eats with them." Um, and so, basically, what they're saying is he can't possibly be righteous. Because he's a friend of sinners
0: one of the things that's true about tax collectors and sinners whenever we encounter them in the Bible is that they typically have no illusions about where they are and what mm-hmm. they're you know it's like there's there's they're not deceiving themselves in any way they understand their position um, yeah. and the Pharisees did not
1: yeah I've talked with evangelists before and I've, and I've heard this in one way or another from multiple people where they'll say, you know, the hard part of evangelism is not getting people found, it's getting people lost, you know, which means, you know, you come and you, you think people say, you know, I don't need a savior. Yeah, I've got it together. I'm a pretty good person. And unless somebody recognizes that their life is a mess and that they're in need of something outside of themselves, it's really hard to get them to see the value of Jesus. Yeah. And that's where the Pharisees are. These other people, like you said, they know their lives (laughs) are in shambles. So, a message of hope is appealing. The Pharisees don't feel like they need hope, they've got it under control. They're good enough for God in their own minds.
0: I have a difficult time understanding people. Who, who, and I know people in my, in my own world, in my immediate world, I've had conversations with people who have said, I just can't believe that people are basically bad. I have to believe that people are basically good. At deep down inside, we want to be good. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. Not at all.
1: I don't understand it either. I mean, I, you know, There's something beautiful about, you know, the old song, What a Wonderful World, I See Trees of Green and Red Roses, too, and all that, where you want to see the world as a beautiful place because God made it. You know, there are elements of this world that are really, really wonderful. That's absolutely true. And wanting to find the best in things, like I understand that impulse but it almost has to become delusional in my opinion when you look at the world and all of the evil that it suffers, and even in my own heart, how i'm i'm you know if I get in a fight with my wife or an argument with my wife, I want to win, and even if it if, even if it means that the argument drags out rather than me apologizing, I find this instinct in me that wants self over everyone else like i I feel sin in me, not to mention the world that I look at that's a right. total train wreck right. You know, it feels like sin is a great power, not only in me, but in our world. And when you look around, it seems like the natural inclination of men over the history of the world, no matter which era you study, sin seems to reign. Now, theologically, as an elder in a Reformed church,
0: (laughs) I would say that that's evidence of the pre-regenerative work of the Spirit, right? I mean, that's God's Spirit working in our hearts to convict us, to make us aware of our sin mm-hmm. and our need for a savior. And one of the things that I do when I feel doubts is I look back on experiences in my life like mm-hmm. that one, and I say, that's that's nothing that's that's natural in me. That's something that God reached down and tapped me on the forehead, probably with a two-by-four like Balaam's donkey, <laughs> uh, bong, and then said, you know, hey, you know what? You need some help here um but it is things like that 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 not only have convinced me that my sort of reformed view of of soteriology is correct but also that that in my own life that i've had these encounters with the divine with god's spirit mm-hmm. it's a comfort to me it helps me when i doubt
1: yeah and you know when, to use a religious term not to to dig too deep at this point but the word righteousness, you know, when when the average person hears righteousness, there's a, a billion tons of baggage that come with it. Now it sounds like a you know religious term, self righteous, holier than thou. But the word literally means: Are you right with God? Are you right with one another? Right? Are you in good standing? And there's something instinctive in all human beings that you see everywhere: this deep insecurity that we are just not right. I remember when, when we first started having the men's breakfast, it was originally just for dads at the school. And we'd been talking about what it means to be a good father and what it means to be a good husband. And I mean these are these are intense <laughs> high callings, right? And so I got done describing what it means to be a good husband and a good father and, and I asked the question and I wasn't intending to, but I just said, you know, how many of you feel like you're failing at this? And without exception, Mark Every single hand in that room went up and it was guys that felt like they didn't love their kids well enough, that they didn't love their wives well enough, that they weren't doing good enough to get approval. And there's something in us that recognizes that we're broken. We don't measure up even if – you know if you don't want to call it sin, like you know they're not actively going out and doing awful things, but they just don't feel right. Yeah. I'm not who I should be. Um, I'm not who I want to be. I think every person on planet Earth feels that, you know, Mm -hmm. and so there's this universal sense of something broken. Um, Even if you can't say, I think man is bad, which, uh, you know, he is. (laughs) Right. Um, He's broken. There's something off. We're not right with the world. We're not right with God and one another. Um, And everybody senses that.
0: And let me clarify one thing. I'm not saying that – People who are not Christians don't do good things. What I'm saying is that the, that the, that we train ourselves to behave in acceptable ways. We, we mm-hmm. teach ourselves and, and, and indoctrinate ourselves to do what's right, quote unquote, because that's the thing that good people do. Again, doing air quotes. And so the things that we do that are not evil, those are the things that are really against our basic nature. And some of us are better at at beating that out of ourselves than others, but it's nothing that's, you know, it's like still deep down inside in the, in your heart of hearts in that dark place. You are inherently selfish. You are inherently sinful. It is not, it's something that we're born with and we can't escape it apart from the gospel. I'm righteous because he has declared me righteous. God has declared, mm-hmm. it's a judicial thing. God has looked at me and said, I see my son standing in for you. He's subst- you know, your righteousness is his righteousness. Substitutionary. Mm-hmm. It's been given to you by me. And that's the reason. You know, it's and it's and and when I look at that, I'm like what that tells me is that first of all, I don't have to worry. I don't have to try to earn it or achieve it, but at the same time, I feel this desire to live up to it. I'm like I don't mm-hmm. want to let God down. You know, I was like, he's done all this for me. I don't want to disappoint him. Um, and I don't know if that's the right way to feel all the time, but, but it's, it's, it is how I feel. It's like I, you, you love him because he has loved you and done this for you. And you don't just like a, just like a father who, you know, if you love your dad or your mom and you don't want to let them down, it's like, I don't want to let mm-hmm. God down
1: and I think that's a good instinct but what the gospel then comes along and does is you serve God out of this gratitude I love you I want to do well by you and I have these standards I want to meet these standards I want I want to do these things and then what happens is inevitably at some point you're going to fail and you know what God is doing He's doing what's going to be illustrated throughout this chapter. He's chasing after you, welcoming you again, taking you in with open arms and saying, okay, brush it off. I've got this. I've paid for that. That sin is gone as far as the east is from the west. You're 100% clean and righteous in my sight again. You're precious to me. Now let's keep going. Yeah. And so those it's it's a desire to please him, but then your identity in his sight is never Defined by your failures, because Christ has cleansed you once and for all. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're always righteous in His sight because of what Christ has done for you.
0: Okay, so that sounds like a good segue. Let's (laughs) let's look at the text that we keep talking about. I'm not sure which one of us is the tax collector (laughs) and which is the sinner, but you've got you've got them both here today. And uh,
1: yep, yep. So let's look at parts of both and. each of us. Yes. So let's look at what
0: uh, what's going on here. This is Luke chapter 15, beginning verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he, Jesus, told them, the scribes and Pharisees, this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So he opens by saying, What man of you? Obviously, he expects them to really identify with this story.
1: Yeah, he expects them to identify with this story, but he's also pulling in a very, very famous passage that Ezekiel offered. When when God came and – so this – we're talking 600 years before Jesus, mm-hmm. Israel had become this really, really corrupt place and all of the people in leadership, the prophets, the priests, the, the leadership, the kings – Everybody was just growing more and more corrupt and so the Lord came and gave this word to the prophet Ezekiel, which is in Ezekiel chapter 34. And, and you listen to this. He says, this is, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. You should not the shepherds feed the sheep. You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, and here it is, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. And so the the great condemnation that God gives on, on Israel when its shepherds were wicked is you don't chase after the lost sheep. And so when Jesus is looking at these religious leaders, he's challenging them, saying, are you like the wicked shepherd that God really denounced in Ezekiel chapter 34? Which of you had a hundred sheep? If one of them goes astray, are you the kind of shepherd that goes after the one that's lost? And it's an indictment on them because what are they saying? Look at all these sheep that should be allowed to be lost. That's what they're saying about the the tax collectors and the sinners and so even the questions and indictment. And so here you have these Pharisees, like you're saying, who would understand if they were literal sheep, they would absolutely go after their sheep because it brings them benefit. But in talking about human beings, shepherds of souls, it's an indictment against them.
0: Mm.
1: They're exactly who God was talking about in Ezekiel 34.
0: Mm. That's good. I, I also think that um, one of the things I always feel compelled to answer when I'm talking about this parable with somebody is that there's nothing here to suggest that the 99 sheep don't matter. That's the mm-hmm. other thing is that there are people who sometimes will look at. You know, sort of, can I say, our preoccupation, you know, with reaching the lost? And they're like, hey, you know what? What about us? You know, what, <clears throat> we're here in, we're the sheep that are still in the fold. And we're like, there's nothing there that says you're not important. You are important. But this story is about seeking the lost. This is about how important it is to go after the ones that are lost. So now it says that when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. That probably seems like a strange thing to our modern American (laughs) listeners. A sheep is a big animal. Um, I'm thinking that's going to be a pretty big thing, laying across your shoulders. Um, I've always looked at that as, you know, it's the, the shepherd essentially saying either you're injured, you can't find your way back, or you don't know your way back. But this is... Basically, it's not just I went and found it, but I brought it home. You know, mm-hmm. Jesus is saying, when I go when I go look for these people, I bring them
1: home. Mm-hmm. And think about what that means for you and me. Like, there there's no role that the sheep plays in getting back to the flock. Like the shepherd finds it, picks it up, puts it on his shoulders. And carries it all the way home, and he's not grumbling going stupid sheep <laughs> he's delighted he's rejoicing he's singing he's he's filled with joy that he has found the sheep and has borne the entire cost of bringing this sheep back into the fold that's me, like he doesn't come and say, "Okay, now pick up and walk, and you know you you take part of the burden of getting back to the flock he he carries it all on his own, which is awesome um it, it just – I love the heart that this reveals because I've, I've mentioned this before. That when I first was, was exploring faith and this idea of being Jesus, the idea that you know he would have to pay for me on a cross and, and I would come in, it just felt like such a bad deal for Jesus mm-hmm. that I didn't want to come to him until I had something better to offer. Mm. And this was the parable – that crushed that idea. And because in my heart, I'm thinking, I don't want to come to him until I can have something for him that will make him happy. And what this parable says is just be found. Let him carry you. Let him bring you back home. Because when he does that, guess what he's doing? He's rejoicing. Mm-hmm. You want to make the Lord happy and you're lost? The way is not to say, oh, well, let me figure out how by my effort I can make him happy. No, what makes him happy is to find you and to bring you home. Just surrender and let him. Um, it's all by his grace and his goodness. And that that crushed me. I was I was in. I was ready.
0: Now, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me. I found my sheep that was lost. That, that sort of thing of calling together the friends and the neighbors. Um, it, not, obviously, Jesus is portraying himself in this story as the shepherd. And the mm-hmm. tax collectors and sinners are the lost sheep. The friends and the neighbors in this case – would be the Pharisees? Is he saying is he saying to the Pharisees, you should be rejoicing with me? Is that what he means there?
1: Yeah, I think what he's saying is all of my fellow Israelites, all the people in my community should rejoice at this. You know, and so it's like, you know, if you have a prophet, here's Jesus, and he's teaching about the kingdom of God, and the farthest off people are coming and they're excited to hear this message. The tax collectors and the sinners are coming, going, We want to know more the Pharisees should be going, Oh my goodness, like here's the farthest off. They're coming in. This is going to be transformational. But instead, they grumble. And so what Jesus is saying is like if I brought home a lost sheep, like everybody that's my friends, my neighbors would be like, Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so happy for you. But here you are looking at these that are coming home and you're grumbling. You're angry about it. What's wrong with you? That's that's kind of the way I read it. Pharisees you should be the friends and neighbors yeah. that are rejoicing, but you're not.
0: Yeah. You have the opportunity to be the friend of God. What does the friend of God do? He rejoices over the things that the, that God rejoices over. Um, That's right. So then he says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Every time I read that, who need no repentance, <laughs> I'm like, um, I I want to – add something there was like i, I want to just i want to go matthew comma but they should repent
1: <laughs> it's like
0: <clears throat> you know I because the you know let's be honest the scribes and the pharisees had plenty to repent over just like we all mm-hmm. do um but in this case i think what he's saying is who do who do not perceive uh, their need to repent mm-hmm. is that yeah
1: yeah i think that's right but even if even if not if it's if it's the one who's done exactly what they're supposed to do in that moment, that they, they can't repent of the same thing. They didn't go out of the pen and go to the far country and force the shepherd to come chase after them. Like even st- – like the one that he finds, he's happier over than than the ones that didn't stray because he's – now that's not to say that one is more valuable than the others. Right. He would he would chase after any of the ninety nine
0: that were lost. But
1: in right. that moment when when you're reunited, it's like you know you don't know what you have till it's gone. Kind of in human terms, we can understand that. But in in heavenly terms, like when one sinner comes home, um, there's this. It's like a party in heaven. There's joy in heaven, which is such a wild thought that when i i, I see I, I tend to dismiss this and make it impersonal but when i came to faith there was joy in heaven yeah like that's that's wild yeah. <laughs> that's, when you came to faith there was joy in heaven with yeah. the lord with the angels there was rejoicing over you that uh, that's wild to me it is
0: because i think that we all have a tendency to
1: you know i mean
0: First of all, you and I are masters of self-deprecating humor. We, mm-hmm. We'll take, we'll take that first shot at ourselves because it kind of disarms the other person. You can't make a joke about <laughs> me right. faster than I can make a joke about me.
1: Yeah. You know, my that jokes can, about me are better.
0: Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> my joke is probably a little bit more cutting because I know how bad I am. Um, but the, it is true, however, that we sometimes struggle with this idea that not just God, but When it says in heaven, like you say, that's talking about the angelic beings. That's, that's talking about the other denizens and residents of heaven. They're all there aware of what's going on. This, you know, this implies awareness. They know what's going on and they rejoice when a lost one is found. And that's the, and the other thing that I, again, let me, I'm coming back to my, This is where Mark defends the reformed faith again, but there's a sense in which the lost one is known to them. He's Mm -hmm. they're sought specifically as them. Sam was lost, Mark was lost. Sam's come home. Let's rejoice. That kind of thing. There's a it's it's not a situation like hey hey someone's here, but there's an it's a there's an expectation of that return and and I think that that this will be borne out as we work through the the three. Uh, parables here because the third parable which is the much more famous parable parable of the prodigal son i think gives a lot more detail to sort of and Mm -hmm. nuance uh uh, to the story but
1: so let's much more personal for sure
0: it does yeah so let's look at the it's a very short second parable here and you said something about this when we were texting back and forth about it earlier this week you said you feel like this parable sometimes gets lost In between. yeah. The lost sheep is is a well-known one. Prodigal son is a well-known one. The lost coin, maybe not so much so. But both of us, I think, got a lot out of looking at it this week.
1: Yeah. So the the lost sheep was particularly meaningful to me when I first came to faith. Then the lost coin is kind of like, okay, somebody loses a coin. She sweeps around and looks under the couch, finds it, and she's happy. Okay, moving on. Yeah. And then – that's, I mean that's kind of how you read it, but the the parable of the prodigal son then is super personal, very powerful parable. But the lost coin tends to get uh, lost in the process. And so we were talking before the show start like Jesus never wastes words; he's not just repeating the same parable again and again, you know, to show us different examples of the same thing. He's he's it's, he's building here, right? And so when you're at the parable of the lost sheep, what happens? You have you know. Sheep that belong to a particular household and one of them ventures outside of the house and runs off and forces the shepherd to leave the household and go on a journey after the one. But then the second one is, okay, here's a lost coin that's inside the house. And so it's building, you know, the contrast is now here you have a a woman who's lost one of her 10 coins and she's inside the house looking for something that's precious. And so... I think what Jesus is setting up here is it's not only the good you know the the righteous person who ventures off to look for the lost sheep but it's the righteous person who looks for the lost within their own house. Mm-hmm. Um and this is of course building up to the last parable to where there's going to be two lost sons really. One who goes on a distant journey and like the shepherd the you know Somebody's supposed to go look for him, and they don't because the older brother is resentful. But then the older brother is lost, and he's inside the house. And so it's building toward that, Yeah, I think. The, sec- the parable of the lost coin, just three
0: verses here, beginning in verse 8, or what woman, Jesus said, having... 10 silver coins. If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, again friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The thing that struck me about this one, um, which was slight, I, I, I like, by the way, what you said about the going out of the house and then lost within the house. I think that's a big part of it also. But from from my perspective, what I saw was that the first story, because Jesus is talking to these guys, what man of you, and he knows they're going to identify with this idea of the ownership of the flock and and that sort of thing, that I just picture some of them at the end of that parable, thinking to themselves, okay, look, I get it. I got a hundred sheep. I'll give up one. Can we get rid of these tax collectors and sinners, please? You know, <laughs> How much of a loss is one sheep out of a hundred? And then you come into the second story where Jesus says, this woman has 10 coins and one of them is missing. That is a tenth of her available wealth. It's, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so I think it, to me, what I saw Jesus establishing in the second story was the one who is lost is valuable. It shouldn't be – you shouldn't ignore it. You shouldn't go, oh, well, it's in the seat cushions somewhere. It's valuable. This is something that we want to retrieve because it's worth a lot. Um, and I do think that there's mm-hmm. – you know, this idea of being within the house is also there too. But I also like the fact that the second one establishes some intrinsic value. To the lost, God goes after the lost and seeks the lost because they they matter to Him. They're mm-hmm. worth something to Him.
1: Yeah. And this woman is is if she's only got ten coins, and you know the the word there uh, is drachme which and that's a, a about the same as a denarius. It's a day's wage. So here's a woman who's less than paycheck to paycheck. She's got ten days worth of money to to sustain her. So when she loses one, <laughs> that one. Really, really matters because she's she's not exactly wealthy, right? Um, and so scarcity plays a, a point in this, and so she's she's in. And one of the other things um, that I'd mentioned, you know, when I was looking at this, I'm always looking for for patterns to to get me off into heresy. <laughs> but, <laughs> but but anyway, I, when I was thinking about this, you know, here you have a Jewish woman who is sweeping out her house, looking everywhere, and it made me remember that before the Passover. They you know, they would do – where we get spring cleaning from actually, um, but they would sweep out their house to get rid of leaven from the house or yeast or any, any goods that had leaven in it because it, leaven was seen as a sign of corruption. And so they would literally take everything out of their house and sweep out their house and they would look for leaven in any kind of product. And then they would bring everything back in the house to make sure that as they went to Passover that their house was purified – and so as I was looking to see, OK, how does that exactly work? I came across this a, a festival or celebration that they would do and I'd never heard of it before. So, so I'm going to butcher the name, but I think it's pronounced Badikat Chametz And then it's the Hebrew celebration that on the night before Passover, listen to what they would do and you'll hear the similarities. So in the, in the parable of the lost coin, you have a woman who loses one of ten coins. She lights a lamp and she starts sweeping the house. And this tradition, what they would do on the night before Passover to make sure that you got all the leaven out of the house, the 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 head of the household would go around and he would take 10 things with leaven and he would hide them all throughout the house. And that night they would go into the house with lamps and they would have a feathered broom and a wooden spoon And you would have to find each of the 10 pieces of leaven in order for your house. And basically it forced you to look everywhere so that if there was any accidental leaven left in there, you'd you'd find it in the process. And so they would take the the feather broom and they would sweep it onto the the leaven, onto the wooden spoon and they would discard it to get it out of the house. And I found it strange that the – what's going on here – and they would hide 10 of these leaven things and you had to find all ten. So here you have a woman with ten coins. She loses one. She lights a lamp and she sweeps the house until she can account for all ten. And in this tradition before Passover, they threw in ten pieces of leavened whatever it is and you would light a lamp. You would break out the broom and you would sweep the house until you accounted for all ten. And so it's, it just seems interesting to me that Jesus is contrasting, you know, cleaning out the house to get rid of the leaven, and Jesus is using that same kind of tradition to say, no, 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 what you consider leaven, Pharisees, are coins, precious coins, and you need to be every bit as diligent of you know your, your self-righteousness of making sure that all the leaven's out of the house. You need to be searching for these coins. Mm. You've got treasure in your house that you don't see, and you're losing them. And so he's he's setting these – that tradition against this parable, which really kind of made the parable come to life for me and it shows, you know, how religiosity for the Pharisees was so important to where they would do these exacting traditions. But yet human beings, things that are truly precious, they were willing to lose. Mm. So now we come to the third of
0: the parables in Luke chapter 15, and this one is much longer, and it's much more nuanced. Jesus here is is bringing it home. He's like he set them up now with a couple of shorter stories, and now he's going to tell something to them that will really rebuke them, I think, and, and prick at their conscience, or should, anyways. Mm-hmm. In verse 11, it says, and he, and he said, Jesus again talking, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, that um, the younger son would receive, what, about a third of the property? Isn't that how it works? Mm-hmm. And in Israel, yeah, the older son gets the double portion?
1: Correct. Okay. So the firstborn son is going to get the double portion. So if there's only two sons, it would be divided into three shares. The firstborn son would get two and the younger brother would get one.
0: So this younger brother is going to receive now the 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 a third of the father's estate. You know, asking for the father asking the father for that like before he's dead. When I was reading about that, um, a few of the commentaries were saying that while it would be considered disrespectful, it actually wasn't that unusual that there were that It was not at all. It wasn't really uncommon for children to ask for their inheritance before uh, the parent actually had had died. But it was disrespectful. How do you take that?
1: Yeah, so so it did happen, but the the meaning behind it is I rather than living under your provision, I would rather you be out of my life so I can take control of my life. Mm-hmm. And so the way that I've always heard it preached is that you're basically wishing your father was dead so you could get it over with and take possession of his wealth and the stuff that he had built up that he's going to pass on. Um, So the disrespect is I would rather use this for me than to be in your household receiving from you. Right.
0: What the son is very clearly saying to his father is I don't want you. I want the stuff. It's like Mm -hmm. he's he's basically saying you're just a conduit for stuff. Give me my stuff, please. Um so then verse thirteen, not many days later the younger son gathered all he didn't waste any time, Sam. He's like, Not many days uh, later, he's out of here. The younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, the reckless living later we're the the actually the word reckless there is is not the that's an ESV thing again. Um I other ones, other translations imply a sort of Appetites of the flesh kind of thing. And, and we'll see a little bit later on that the older brother actually accuses him of squandering it in prostitutes. Um, mm-hmm. so basically the younger brother went to a far country, which again, uh, would indicate that this was a considerable journey, like outside Jewish territory. Like he went mm-hmm. – he, he didn't just wander off from the flock. He took a deliberate journey a long way away where he wasn't going to have to hear about the father anymore. And then he took the father's wealth and he used that to satisfy his own carnal appetites. That's mm-hmm. what we're seeing happen here.
1: Yeah. And one of the other things that that's implied here is if he takes all this and goes off into a far country, he's not just leaving – the father but he's leaving the country the family he's leaving all of his customs he's leaving his synagogue he's leaving his community of worship he's basically walking away from everything that yeah. the father had instilled in him yeah he's he's abandoning it all he's turning his back on everything that the father had done for him yeah
0: So verse 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. I mean, it is a it is a sad, (laughs) sad Uh state of affairs. First of all, a, a Jewish person... Pigs were an unclean animal. They wouldn't mm-hmm. touch them. They wouldn't have them. They wouldn't own them. They wouldn't let them be around. So that, for one thing, tells us that he really is outside of the Jewish culture because mm-hmm. there's pigs here. And the second thing is that he had fallen so, you know, it's like, He was the – I'm just guessing – now, this is Mark reading between the lines. Once again, folks, we have the Mark Lautenschlager version of scripture here. But I'm thinking that when this guy was there with dad's wealth and he was spending it on carnal pleasures of the flesh, he was probably a big deal. Everybody Mm -hmm. likes to hang around the big spender. Sam, you picking up the tab? Let's go. (laughs) You know? And he so he probably thought he had a bunch of friends until the money ran out.
1: This is another indictment of the human condition, right? Yes you know he doesn't say and he was poor and people surrounded him and wanted to care for him i mean it's like the moment that they've sucked him dry of everything that they wanted from him they have no use for him anymore
0: and let's um, let's read the
1: sentence correctly
0: he's not even worth pig food to them all wow. he wants is some of the food which would be which by the way they fed pigs on scraps not regular food because pigs would eat that stuff and could live on it and so he's like I will take the junk that you're feeding the pigs that's how hungry I am and and these you know people that were more than happy to help him spend his money are saying to him you're not even worth pig food to us yeah
1: and and first century this would have been really shocking because Jews Viewed pork or pigs as utterly disgusting, and here it's saying, you know, he's longing to eat what the pork eats, <laughs> and he's not even worthy of receiving that. And the people around him's eyes—that's yeah. um, he's hit yeah. rock, rock bottom.
0: And that's and that's absolute. This is this is absolute rock bottom. You know, and and we're not suggesting that everybody who wanders and becomes lost in the far country necessarily has to hit absolute rock bottom before they kind of realize what they're, what's wrong. But I will say it doesn't hurt. You know, when you, when you hit (laughs) rock bottom, it's a, it's a bucket of cold water over your head and you suddenly start to look at things, you know, a little more clearly.
1: Yeah. And the Most people when they come across something like this would would want to raise a fist to God and say, why would you do this? Why would you do this to me? Why would you allow this to happen? Why would everyone turn away from me? And the answer behind this when you know the rest of the story, which of course the younger brother doesn't know at this point, is purely God's mercy – you know, he's bringing him to this low point because he loves him and it's going to be ultimately the best thing that could have ever happened to him. You know, had he not stumbled, had he not run out of wealth, had he won the lottery or, you know, something happened that allowed him to prolong his selfish journey. The story could have ended much differently, but God's mercy brought him to a bottom. Yeah. And, and that's important, you know, when we reach those bottom moments, is, is to have that imagination of faith to see that God might be doing something incredibly loving and merciful in our lives, calling us away from folly, because that's exactly what's happening here.
0: Yeah. Verse 17, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, and he rehearses his speech here, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And I'm just guessing that he probably said that enough times that he could blurt the whole thing out in like <laughs> half of a, a breath and a half a heartbeat here. There's a couple things that I think are, are interesting in the setup here. One thing that occurred to me is that although it is hunger that motivates him, He's, he's hungry and he, and he knows that his father's hired service, meaning people that work for dad but aren't one of the sons, like people with lower standing than me are being taken care of by my father. It is still his father that he wants to go see. So it's like it's like he looks he he recognizes that the father is the source here. It's like I want to go back to my father, and the other thing that stuck out to me was I was reading that here is that he's acknowledging both the judicial and the personal nature of his offense. Father, I have mm-hmm. sinned before heaven. That's the judicial. It's like I've done wrong. Ju- just you know, objectively, what I did taking this money, squandering it, the pigs, the the pods, the whole thing. That's just wrong at its face, and there's no defense for it, and before you. So it's personal. I've offended you, Father. Um, And I think that that's an important thing also, because we were talking a little bit at the beginning of this about that pre-conversion experience what do you have to be what has to happen to you in your mind before you are ready to come to jesus seeking forgiveness and finding grace at the cross Mm -hmm. there's two things the first is you've got to understand that you're a sinner but it's not just an abstract objective like yep i'm a sinner everybody's a sinner we're all sinners hey sam you me tax collectors sinners yeah join the pool everybody in the pool we're all sinners But it's also a personal offense to God. It's like Mm -hmm. we have offended God by our sin. And so he's going to forgive us that offense, but we need to recognize
1: it first because we have to confess it. One of the things that's interesting to me about this and that I'm kind of glad for is it doesn't say, you know, he sincerely in his heart came up with this speech. And so the cynic in me is saying – you know, is he saying I'm, I want to go to my father because he can turn the spigot back on and give me comfort, um, and and I just want to start receiving stuff again. I don't want to be miserable again, and so I'm ready to go home and, and exploit again. Or is he, you know, more like what you're saying? Is he saying, "Oh my gosh, I really messed up, and I'm heartbroken for my dad, and I want to go see him again"? You know, you're left to wonder at the beginning of this. You know, where is he? Is is he just thinking, you know, what I'm I'm going to scheme one more time? And, and start heading home um, so that I can get in dad's good graces again or is he crushed like when he came to himself is the idea right he definitely recognized that he had it better with the father yep um, definitely recognizes that and that's one of the things you know we you, you mentioned this earlier you know we're you, you people value what he valued what the father had, but he didn't value the father. He just wanted his stuff. Has that changed here? Yeah. Um, and it and it leaves it open ended, and the parable continues. Yeah. So it says
0: then that uh, verse twenty, and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So that's what's happening here the father ran now that would have been a pretty undignified thing for mm-hmm. the father in that culture to do
1: yeah and first century israel it was it was it was just a common thing that revered or older jewish men did not show their legs it was considered improper and undignified and so it, for him to be able to run he has to bind up you know the long robe he's got to pull it up and bind it to be able to run and so it would have been he would have endured the shame. Everybody would have been looking at him going, oh, he's doing that. you know, he's showing his legs. and it would have been considered undignified. But you know, I mentioned before when the son realizes, man, I would be better off at my dad's house. Uh, so I'm gonna go home and he rehearses the speech. and you're left wondering at that point, like, is he doing this just because he wants something better than pig slop? Or is he really brokenhearted? And you know, I read this story, and you know, I'm skeptical for up until you get to the point where, when the father sees him from a long way off, and the father runs and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I think at that moment, even if <laughs> that younger brother was still, you know, torn and and his soul, I think that moment crushed him. Mm -hmm. And I think if, if nothing else, seeing the extent of how much this had hurt the father, that he's on the rooftop, he's looking down the road. He sees him from a long way off, which means he's been anticipating this for a long time, hoping and waiting for the day when his son is going to come home and when he sees him, he endures the shame of running with his legs exposed and he embraces him and kisses him without a question. He doesn't interrogate him. He doesn't say, are you here to rip me off again? He's just overjoyed even though he has suffered greatly because of his young youngest son. But he just embraces him and kisses him. And you know, I remember when I first was coming to faith, you know, you you think through, you're like, my life's a mess. I'm out of control. I've got this addiction. Everything's wrong. And at that point, you know, at least intellectually, something's wrong. I need to find God. I need to do something better. But it's when you realize that when you come to God, he doesn't snub you. He doesn't shame you, but he embraces you and kisses you. That's what crushes you and leads you to authentic repentance. That's always been my my experience that even when I'm not sure, I feel it. I just know something's wrong. When I come to God and He just embraces me and kisses me, that's always what really grabs my heart. It's like a, the verse in Romans where it says, um, uh, "It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance." Well, what does that mean? it's when you come to him with all this mess and you've got no basis to appeal like there's no righteousness that you have and you come before him going I, I i'm i'm so sorry and he just grabs you before you can even justify yourself and kisses you and tells you that everything is made new and that he's paid for all this and all he wants is you and your heart it crushes you in a good way it it it's it makes you Want to leave your sin and stronger veracity than anything you've ever experienced prior to that moment. But I think that's what – when the father sees him and shows the level of love and reckless abandon of welcoming him home, I can't imagine that this younger son's heart isn't if – if there was cynical scheming at prior to that moment, I think it gets crushed when he sees the extremes of his father's love. God
0: knew what it would cost him, both in terms of the pain and the cross, but also the shame. It's like mm-hmm. he was willing to do anything for us.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and and this is if we didn't clarify this, but this parable, the Father, so I'm assuming most people have picked it up, the Father's God. Yeah. You know, he, he feels compassion. He runs, he embraces, he kisses. And, and the two sons are basically, you know, the two directions that, that we tend to go to find significance or meaning or value. So the, the one son thought, you know what, I'm going to break all the rules to find satisfaction in this world. And he took his father's inheritance and he went out and he lived this crazy lifestyle. But the other son is, is saying, you know what? I'm going to find my significance by keeping the rules. I'm right. going to be the good son. And both of them are missing it. Your identity, their identity doesn't find its security by breaking the rules and trying to find freedom and out of the oppressive rules. Or it's, it's also not keeping the rules. Like you get to earn something. It's purely in the father's love. And that's ultimately what the parable is getting at. You don't – you don't win freedom and joy by breaking the rules, right? And you'll never find security and freedom by just keeping the rules. What gives you that is the father's love. Yeah. That's the key for both sons yeah. in the story.
0: Well, before we get to the older son, let's uh, let's get the father's actions here. Um, the father has he's the father ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. Verse twenty one, and the son said to him. This is the rehearsed speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And at that point, the father interrupted him. He didn't even let him finish the whole speech. I mean, it's only two sentences long, but the father's like, shush. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now these three gifts that the Father gives him here, these are pretty symbolic things, aren't they? I mean there's there's a lot this isn't just like, dude, you smell and you're shabby and your clothes look like crap and your feet are bare. We're gonna get you hooked up. But no, each (laughs) of these had some some symbolism to it.
1: Yeah, I mean for starters, before before even getting into the symbolism like when he comes home you got to remember that this son left and he was arrogant and he thought he was hot stuff and he left with the best and lots of wealth and when he returns i mean he he doesn't have shoes his his robes are a mess and probably stained with all kinds of mud and pig slop and everything else he's utterly humiliated he's penniless he's hungry he's he can't afford anything all of his money is gone i mean he wanted to eat Pig slop. So when he arrives, come walking down the road from a distance, this is not the same son that left. He's, he looks radically different and he comes in and he says, I'm not worthy to be your, called your son and bam, he says, I, 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 bring me the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. He needs to be restored Um to the, to the role as my son. So you know, that ring, for example, in the ancient world, there's a ton of these that they found in archaeology. The ring is where you kept the seal of the household. So if you were, if you were putting a stamp or putting, rolling something through wax to put your seal on it, the ring held that seal and so it gave the authority of the house. And so when he walks in, the younger son, it's, it's not just saying, hey, I'll take you in as a servant. He's saying, no, 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 you have full authority. I am restoring to you full authority to act on my behalf as my son mm-hmm. um, and putting the robes on uh, – the best robe on him. I mean it's it's giving him a place in, in the ancient world, robes in particular. You can think Joseph, for example. Um, the best robe would be a sign of of, of status. It's He would have been – exalted and elevated. And so in all these ways, you have this son that is coming back a disheveled shell of what he was before and he has no basis. He has absolutely nothing to appeal to the father to say, I deserve this. And the father pours forth mercy on him and says, no, 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 you're a son and I'm going to restore you to full status. And I know that you did research on some of this too.
0: Yeah, there was also the the shoes, the the sandals on his feet that 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 idea was that at that time servants would not have shoes and sandals of the type that were being referred to here. So, it's all that that symbol was that of being a free man as opposed to a slave. So, the son in that far country had essentially become a slave. That's that's what he was. He was a slave to the man who was feeding his pigs, and the father is giving him his status back as being free. The ring, as you say, is the authority of being a son. And then the best robe, this idea of the best robe, that was very big in that culture, To say that, that you are an honored guest. Even if you came in with a good robe, you know, Sam, you were dressed to the nines, no problem. But you (laughs) know what? I've got a special robe. A robe that I only give to my honored guests. So, this, so as the younger brother came back, the father was, was restoring him fully to his status as a son. It was a symbol of honor with the robe, of authority with the ring, and freedom with the shoes. It was you know and when you think about that i mean that's really what happens it's like when you come to god empty handed like i got nothing lord the only thing i have is i've created a mess that needs you to fix to fix it it's like the only thing we contribute mm-hmm. to our own salvation is the sin that made it necessary um and so when you come to god that way it's like that's when you receive freedom you you may think i've got nothing so i'm free no You've got nothing, but you're still not free. It's, it's God that sets us free. It's that. So I think that was the importance of those gifts. Each of those was symbolic, the honor, the authority, and the freedom. Um, yeah. At least that's how I interpreted it from looking at customs of that time. Uh, and I just think
1: it's – I think it's beautiful. It's amazing. But I, you know, if you pause and remember, okay, he's telling the story to people who do not want tax collectors and sinners – to be celebrated. Right. Well, he's just described somebody who's far worse, right? This is somebody who's walked away from the faith entirely, left the country, squandered his own household's wealth. Like the way that he describes this wicked son um, would have made these Pharisees and scribes absolutely infuriated. And you gotta imagine, like if you're a servant in the house and you see this guy come home and he's he's made your household miserable and he brought division to the house and a lot of grief to the house and the father's been weeping and you know, who knows, mom and, and the brother, all this turmoil that's come, and now he just shows up and without having to do any penance to earn restoration, the father just overwhelmingly showers him with this kind of love. Like there's a part of me that if I lived in that household as a servant or a brother, like let's just be honest, we're like, hold on a minute, like this is foolish. He needs yeah. to pay something. Um, so there is some some Pharisee in me in yeah. this story because you got to really let this let this story sit on you. Imagine this being your family and having this done to you. You would want some justice, yeah. and yet what the father does is his love. Overwhelms all of it. Yeah. And that's what God has offering to us. That's what Jesus was offering to tax collectors and sinners. And that's what the Pharisees and scribes could not stand. Yeah. And I bet if you would have asked the Pharisees and the scribes at this point, if Jesus had stopped and said, What do you think? They would say, The Father's foolish. Hmm. Hmm. You think? Yeah, I mean, maybe they love their own sons to where they could enter into the story, but I bet they're like, whoa, this this is extreme.
0: I was thinking either foolish or just they would say he was wrong. That, you Mm -hmm. know, it's like, yeah. Well, so speaking of bad attitudes and pound of flesh, it's time for the older son to make an appearance. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, And is found so there's a part of me just like you said that gets the point of the older son you know the older son feels like hey i'm in here doing all the stuff that you've asked me to do i'm keeping the rules i'm making sure that the fields are taken care of i'm looking after your stuff dad i'm waiting politely for you to die so i can have it unlike this guy I'm doing the right Mm -hmm. thing, not the wrong thing. And you've never even given me a young goat, let alone a fattened calf. So there's a part of me that understands the older son's indignation. And for the same thing, though, then I feel, I feel the rebuke that comes to him. You know, I'm like, Mm -hmm. man, if I was a son, I should share, I should be joyful over what makes the father joyful.
1: And in this story, like enter into the father's role, because at the beginning, what what's revealed here in this last little bit, we already knew that the younger son didn't truly love his father; he just wanted what the father could give, and that's kind of humanity's natural stance toward God. Okay, yeah, God, we don't necessarily want you; we want your blessings, and and so the Lord who wants our heart, who wants relationship just sees you know the younger son taking and taking and taking and wishing you were dead. He only wants your stuff and you think, you know, this one is bad. But now out of the mouth of the older son, he reveals, look, I don't feel – these many years I've served you have never disobeyed you yet. You never gave me a young goat. What the older son doesn't say is – I am so lucky to be in relationship with you. I get to have intimacy with you and your presence and I'm with you and I experience your love and your protection and your security in the way that you watch over me. The older son doesn't value the father at all either. He's saying, look, I've kept the rules. I should get your stuff. So both the younger son and the older son are only interested – And the Father's blessings, they're just going about it two different ways. One thinks he can get the stuff by breaking the rules, and the other one thinks he can get the stuff by keeping the rules, but neither one of them wanted the Father. Neither one of them. But what does the Father do to both? I love this because when he sees the prodigal returning home, the one who is broken, who realizes that he's broken – he's breaking all the rules, he makes a mess of his life, when the Father sees him coming home – He runs out to meet the prodigal son. And here you have the older brother who's saying, I will not come into this household. I'm so angry that you've shown mercy. This is Pharisees, hint, hint. I'm so angry that you've shown mercy that I want nothing with you or this celebration at all. And what does the father The father runs out to him too. It says the father came out. He's unwilling to go into the house. And entreated and so him. Both, and entreated yeah, him. So in, I mean,
0: that's, that's also undignified, right? I mean,
1: yeah, for come a father. On, please. Yes, for yeah. a father to sort of
0: beg the son to understand.
1: Yeah. So in the story, you have the father who's, who's <laughs> shaming himself to win the sons. And in this case, you know, it, it, you're left with a cliffhanger. It doesn't – you don't – you get the sense that he digs in and stays outside, but it doesn't it doesn't tell you what ultimately ends up happening. But the Father's heart toward the rule keepers who don't have a relationship with him and the rule breakers who don't have a relationship with him are the same. I want a relationship with you. Come near. Come to me. Um, and it's interesting. You know, Jesus wants our heart. Yeah. That's that's what he's after. You know, I think that is interesting
0: because when I talk to people who really don't know anything about the church, really, and there's a lot of people now that are like, yeah, I've really never been to church. I mean, it's like it is a post-Christian culture out there now. There are people out there that, Sam, they've grown up. They're they're in their 30s and 40s, and they've no one's ever taken them to a church. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up, everybody went to church sometime. You hated it maybe, but your parents dragged you. And so there's people out there that have just never been inside of a church. And and when you talk about the fact that you go to church, people are like, why? You know, and and, and it's very – well, it's very transactional yeah. to them. It's like, what do you get out of it? I'm like, well, I, I do that because this is this is where I go to be with, you know, the people of God and to worship God together as a community. And they're like, so – but what do you get from that? You know that kind of thing. It's very transactional.
1: You know, and there's something, and the and as we keep sliding more and more into that post-Christian culture, you know, in my time, twenty years or whatever it's been as a as a believer, I've noticed that it actually gets easier to talk to people about Jesus, ironically, um, and that people because i think before when we had so much cultural christianity it was like oh yeah yeah i know what that is but now you have it feels like people are more desperate to be known to be loved they feel like something's not right there's so much hate and animosity and division and a sense of despair in the world that when you when you're faithful and you you don't put in all the extra garbage that divides people out but when you honestly present a picture of Jesus and what he's done and what he offers, it's like – gosh, it, it's it's alluring. Like people yeah. want it more. Yeah. They've never heard anything like this. And I think that the dying of cultural Christianity, which there's a lot in me that grieves over that by the way because you know there's a lot about civic virtue and all that stuff that I think is really wonderful and we need yep. to have again. Yep. But at the same time … You know, that that loss of losing the sense that Jesus is just the virtue guy and being able to come to somebody with a blank slate and actually present them with the gospel, not just you need to be nice and a kind person um, version of Christianity. Like, man, I I find that people are more and more open and desperate for something like that in ways that I haven't seen before. Yeah, which then raises the question, is that
0: something that – God has done for that reason, you know, because one of the things that you and I have both puzzled about over the years, as we've talked about, you know, the the way that society in many respects, especially in the civic forum, has been circling the drain, and you're like, Lord, what are you doing? Maybe this is what he's doing. You know, maybe what he's doing is he's opening up the door to a whole new gospel, to a whole new not not a new gospel, but a, a new presentation of the gospel to a whole generation of people who need to hear it and not just need to hear it, but want to hear it.
1: Yeah. You
0: know? I don't
1: know. You maybe. know the, I hate to be optimistic. I'm sorry. A, a I'm starting to become an <laughs> optimist, Sam. You know? <laughs> you know, I I grieve over where things seem to be in our country, but I have written in in one of my books that's probably never, ever going to make it to publishing. (laughs) One of these books that I've dreamed up, I wrote a a book about all the conditions that made the gospel explode in the first century, and one of the chapters was God gave them horrible emperors. And so, I mean, the the, the names of the emperors that come right after Jesus are so – I mean, you got Tiberius who's reigning when he dies, but then right on the heels of that, you're going to have men like – uh, Nero yeah. and Caligula yeah. and these these men that were so atrocious and why would God do that? You know, prior to that, you had the Roman Empire that was in the Roman. You know, everything was about Rome, 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 and he made it so gross. It, he made people hungry for another kingdom, and I think that was part of the reason why the church exploded right in that first century. Yeah. And you know, when people hung, when they see that the kingdoms of this world are. Broken and gross and petty and disgusting. You know, you don't give up on the kingdoms of this world. You still want to be a good citizen, but at the same time, it sure makes it easy to put your hope somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) Because, man, this one, not so much.
0: There are many things that if you are you or I, either one of us, were given the opportunity to wave the magic fairy wand and make changes, there's things that would be different. You know, we would we would make mm-hmm. changes about the way things are going. But at the same time, I think that both of us can step back and say what's really important here is that Christ be lifted up, that the gospel be spread, that people come to faith and the kingdom is built. And that's really what it's
1: about. You know? And we should be more passionate about that kingdom. You know, there's there's a couple of other things and, and I feel like I'd be amiss if we didn't bring up – Tim Keller wrote a book called Prodigal God, which is a wonderful book I'd recommend to anyone who wanted to read it. But one of the things that he points out is in this story, when, when the younger brother runs away, the the older brother you know, who is, who is seen ultimately as kind of a manager of the house oftentimes in the ancient world should have been the one to chase after him, not to wait for him to come home but to actually chase after him and he doesn't you know because in the story he's a pharisee you know he's he wants to run away look what he's done to dad you know to be gone with him i don't care i'm not going to lose sleep over him right but what what tim keller points out is we have a much better older brother you know in christ who sees us go and and doesn't just go on on the top of the the porch and wait for us to come home But he pursues us actively. He takes his inheritance, right? The firstborn of heaven takes this massive inheritance that he is absolutely entitled to by right and by righteousness. And he chases after us and he goes to the far country and he he dives down and takes our sin and he'll descend into the worst pig slop imaginable to give his inheritance away and to escort his brothers and sisters back home at tremendous cost to him. Yeah, You know, he's willing to lay down the inheritance. One of the things that makes the older son so angry is everything the father spends on the younger son restoring him is out of his inheritance. It's costing him something for the younger son to come back home and he's angry about it where our older brother, our firstborn of heaven, Jesus, looks at us and says, I'll lay aside, I'll share all of my inheritance with them. Yeah. I will chase them to the far country. I will go to the ends of the earth to find them and to know that, you know, this our older brother of heaven is so much greater, so much greater. Um is a wonder. And I mean everybody can kind of look at their story and see, you know, if they've if you've come to faith, you can look back at your life and you can see the little events that have happened in your life that have kind of called you home. And they used to call Jesus the hound of heaven, like he is pursuing you and all the events in your life that draw you to that moment of salvation and a life with him. That's not by accident. You know, he's he's chasing after you and ordaining everything to to bring you home that heaven might celebrate when you get home, right? All of heaven rejoiced from the earlier parables. Well, here you have the father rejoicing Hmm. and when he goes out to the older son, you know, this is something I texted you, and this is this is a Sam theory. So feel free to dismiss it. <laughs> but when you when you get to the parable of the lost coin, it, it kind of has these parables or parallels with that tradition of Passover, mm-hmm. that where you're cleaning out your house. Well, in this story, there's there's little echoes of what's happening with Passover. When the son comes home, he puts the robe on him, he puts sandals on his feet. Well, on the night before Passover. Everybody was to put on their clothes, to gird themselves, to put sandals on their feet. What does the father do? He slays an animal, he throws a great feast. And so you have these kind of echoes of Passover coming off of that lost coin parable. And here you got echoes again. And where is the older son or the firstborn? Well, Passover is a celebration. And what did God do? He slayed the lamb. And the blood of the Lamb was put on the doorpost so that when the Spirit of God went over Egypt in the days of Moses, everybody that was behind the door marked with the blood, their firstborn son would not perish if they were in the house. And so it sets all this up. And where's the older son at this point? He's outside the house. Yeah. And I'm wondering if Jesus intended to set this up in a way to where the older son, the firstborn son, is hearing these echoes. And he's like, you know, this 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 has got echoes of Passover. I need to be in the house. And the father's pleading, come in the house. Mm. But if he's unwilling to come behind the door, what happens to him? If he stays outside refusing – To rejoice in the the redemption of his brother, what happens to him? Yeah, in terms of the Passover, he be killed. Yeah, that's right. Fills in the blanks. Judgment will fall upon him, and so we're left with that. We don't want to be older brothers. We do not want to be older brothers. Um, We want to delight in the redemption of tax collectors and sinners and younger brothers, recognizing that we don't earn God's favor, that we're every bit in need of his mercy as the worst person on this planet, you know, Mm -hmm. it took the death of God's son to redeem me every Mm -hmm. bit as much as it did the serial murderer who came to faith. Um, I'm no better. Well, folks, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, that it's
0: been profitable for you. Uh, This series, uh, he gave us stories These are being, messages that are being preached right now at our church, Ria Vista Community Church. If you'd like to see the messages that are being preached from these, I thought Tom's message on Sunday was great. I loved, you know, it's like I wrote study notes for that passage and I listened to his message. I'm like, wow, he did a whole different thing. And it's like awesome. (laughs) So, you know, you hear the, you hear the podcast, you get the personal worship notes, and then you get the message on Sunday also. And all of these things sort of fit together to give you the most complete picture of the passage as we're looking at them. So I do encourage you to either go to our website at riovistachurch.com. That's r-i-o-vistachurch.com uh, and find the messages, listen to the messages from Sunday morning in this series. He gave us stories or check out our YouTube channel. You can find them there. You can find them in our free smartphone app uh, for your iPhone or your Android device. Um, take advantage of that. Get the messages, listen to the podcast Get the study notes. Uh, it's all there for you to help you really uh, get the most out of these passages. Uh, if you enjoyed today's broadcast and you'd like to correspond with us, our email address is water at riovistachurch.com. You can also find all the back episodes of this podcast at riovistachurch.com slash out of water. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, and on Spotify. And Sam and I will be back next week with another in the series, He Gave Us Stories.